0: Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel!
1: Here I am. What are we gonna talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. Ooh. This is Gospels Part 104. Oh. <gasps> Last week, uh, we should call last week's episode The Account of Hangry Jesus, because he <laughs> he was kind of moody from a lot of different things that we saw happen leading up to Passover week and final week, really. He uh, yeah. <sighs> cursed a fig tree, and then he went into the temple complex and drove out those who were selling and buying, overturning tables. Yeah. Um, and then the fig tree that he cursed, they revisited it, and it was withered away. And all kinds of connections and parallels we saw to the nation of Israel. The axe is at the root of the tree for them. They had the opportunity to bear fruit with the coming of the kingdom, and they didn't take up on that calling. And therefore, yeah. it's an image of what's to come for them uh, destruction of the temple and exile
0: yeah the funny thing was if if we just took the text at face value we could have i think very reasonably walked away with hey jesus is just being impulsive and angry and you know that just that doesn't seem very right and so what we tried to do was look for no wait a second what's really going on here it Mm can't just be that because that doesn't fit the image of a messiah a savior you know whatever although he was human. So yeah, it was that, I personally find all of that stuff super interesting. So it was good. But now, okay, remember, we're in the last week and we're trying to walk you through day by day. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of stories. There's a lot to cover yet to come. But let's just see where we're at and what do we got going on. So uh, what we're going to do is just continue. We're in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, and Luke chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. In this case, I'm going to read from Mark. They're all basically the same. Here we go. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority? are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them okay so let's be anchored first of all okay now we we noted there's a difference you know i think it was matthew who was saying he cleared the temple earlier and mark said it was you know like the next day or whatever but and we're we're trying to just sort of piece it together and try to make the one just focus on the ones that make the most sense who's to say what's really right In this case, remember, they were coming back toward Jerusalem when they saw the fig tree, but they haven't gotten there yet. So it's still Tuesday. And and now that they've seen the tree, they've continued on their way, and they're actually in Jerusalem. So still Tuesday. At least that's the story we're going with. Now, uh, I think that we've mentioned recently that we thought Jesus' messaging was, I don't know, kind of seemed like it was moving away from the gospel, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and turning toward this idea of the coming judgment. Now, what's interesting, though, is in in these three verses, we didn't read Luke, but if you did, uh, Luke seems to be telling us that Jesus is, in fact, still preaching the gospel. It says, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. I mean, it's pretty clear, right? So again, I think maybe what we need to do is look at it as maybe we're in, maybe we could think of it as more like transition, right? His message all along has been very consistent about the gospel, and in these later scriptures as we're walking our way through, he's now moving toward judgment. So anyway, even in this final week, you can see a little bit of both messages going on. So I thought that was interesting. So again, Jesus is in the temple. He's walking around. Uh, he's teaching. He's preaching. Then this group of men shows up. And Samuel, I mean, come on, just, just, first century Israel, chief priests, scribes, elders, is this not a pretty impressive group? Pretty stacked. By any measurement, you got to say, well, I mean, these were this was kind of a high-powered group of guys whether you thought they were good guys or bad guys or whatever, I mean they're a pretty high powered group of guys so they have what's kind of I don't know I think I would say this would be more in their style they have a very direct and important question for Jesus and we've seen them do little things like this before their question is this by what authority are you doing these things now that isn't the whole question, so let's, let's talk about that just a bit first. When they're saying, by what authority? I, I think probably a, a good way for us to see it is they're kind of asking about the nature of it. Like, is it a divine kind of authority or a human kind of authority? And the reason I say that is because of the second part of the question. Okay, so the first part of the question, I think it's trying to get at, is it human or divine? And and what they want to know is, this authority, you know, I mean, you're doing all these things, so, so what is the nature of the authority by which you think you're doing them? And then, Samuel, let's talk about this. What are all the things that he's been doing?
1: Uh, he's been teaching with authority in the temple complex. He's been performing miracles, uh, yeah. some of them on the Sabbath. Um, oh, he's been stirring up things with clearing out the temple. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Even if we focus
0: on only these, these, uh, most recent couple of days, all of those things that you said are true. Maybe he didn't do anything on the Sabbath. I can't, I don't think he did this most recent one, but all of these things are, are they are there. And you know what else? The triumphal entry. He did that thing. That was a big thing, right? And in a way, you could go, well, it's kind of anything and everything he's ever done. Or even if you're just focused on the last couple of days, it's still a pretty big list. But notice, they say, by what authority? And then they say, who gave you this authority? Now, that's when they're wanting him to name the source. Now, if it was a human authority, they would expect it to be some sort of well-known and I would even say, Recognized sort of rabbi figure. Uh, if it's if it's a divine authority, they want him to say God. So as you can see, in the middle of all this, I don't know. Maybe there's even some sort of trap going on, even though the question seems very direct. So anyway, in first century Judaism, the the reason I mentioned the part about humans. Let's let's talk about this. There was like this clear and strict kind of pathway to becoming. a a recognized, authoritative teacher or elder or whatever. And so, for these guys to come up and ask, hey, by what authority are you doing this? Who who gave you this authority? Okay, this wasn't just their right to question him in this way. It was, and I know you've talked about in the past, Samuel, you specifically, this wasn't just their right, it was their duty. However we've we've gone through a whole bunch of the story here we actually know that they actually know <laughs> that Jesus has not followed that normal path he he does we have no indication from scripture history archaeology any put in nothing that he actually was discipled by a known rabbi you know all that kind of stuff it, it we have no indication that that happened so, again, it appears they're trying to trap him into saying something like, oh, well, this this defo- this authority is actually divine. Or maybe even they might say, uh, the authority is my own. I am the authority. Or maybe they want him to say something like, oh, my authority is directly from God himself. Whatever. Something that they probably felt that they could use against him in some way or another. I don't know. And then again... Okay, those, I think people could see that, but there's also another thing. Samuel, can you read me again the list of the people that came to him?
1: Uh, The chief priests, scribes, and the elders. And I know we did this recently. Who's left out of this list? (laughs) I don't see the Pharisees.
0: Yeah, and so another possibility is that this particular group may have feared that he, Jesus, was actually in league with the pharisees i mean and we've talked about this i know it makes people uncomfortable but jesus and the pharisees actually did agree on you know almost everything it was a lot it was a whole parking lot if you want to say it that way i mean it was a a lot and so it could be maybe the trap wasn't so much about divine human God this that whatever it could have it could have been something as shallow as relating to the
1: Pharisees and being in league with them or whatever it's hard to say, yeah, um where should we put the Sadducees uh in this description whenever the text says these three groups of people is that to be assumed uh The same as the Sadducees, or are they different? Um, I'm just wondering how they fit into or not fit into this part of the story. Yeah, well, the Sadducees, their stranglehold was on the high priesthood,
0: and I think, to a large degree, the Sanhedrin. So I think that within that, you're probably going to see the chief priests, well, they're probably going to be in alignment with the Sadducees, the high priesthood. So I think you could see them in there. And then who makes up the Sanhedrin? Well, it's it's from varying places or parts of Judaism. And so they could also be within any of those other parts with the, the scribes or elders or whatever. Uh, but also, I mean, you're, it's a good point. They aren't mentioned explicitly. But given the whole big story, we know that they're always kind of sitting in the background. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: Anything else? No. Okay. Yeah, we're just getting into it. So let's keep going. All right. This is a slightly bigger section. We're moving on to Matthew chapter 21, verses 24 to 27. Mark chapter 11, 29 through 33, and Luke 20, verse 3 through 8. And now I'm going to switch over and read from Matthew, just because he has a little more detail that I think we'll care about. So here we go. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things.
1: So this is kind of a cool little interaction, right? I loved your prim and proper tone. We do not know. (laughs) That's right.
0: Yeah. Sometimes, you know, we actually have a few listeners that are uh, in uh, the UK, like that England, not University of Kentucky. I have to to specify that around here. Anyway, and yeah, I don't know what it is when you really want to be authoritative or something like that. You notice how there's always like a, a slight English accent edge that enters into everything. I don't know. They just got it going on. It's a weird deal. But anyway, so uh, now here though, this is interesting now, I presented that first part as if you know, we don't really know what they're saying, we don't know about this, we don't know about that, but I think that Jesus is actually kind of letting us in on what they were really thinking. so Jesus recognizes the trap and and he wasn't okay, he wasn't act he wasn't doing the you know the dreaded I'm gonna answer your question with a question. it wasn't exactly that he was doing something. I don't know. It was a little bit more like haggling, which by all accounts, this is pretty popular in first century Jewish culture. Can I say that out loud? Barter, haggle, or trade. I have what you need. I don't know. I think it's a thing. But it's more like, if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. So Jesus's question, and I think it's reasonable to say, it was very much like theirs in, in at least this one sense. It was a question about the source of authority. But, as I was saying, I think it exposes a little more clearly their intended trap. Jesus is asking directly, was the authority for John's baptism from God or from man? Another way we might say it today is, hey, do you think that God sent John Or was he just a phony? Now, we have no clear indicators that John the Baptist had any more formal training than Jesus did. Although, and and, uh, trust me, in, in scholarly circles, there's a lot of speculation and people arguing for things and a lot of really good arguments one of the things that kind of stands out is, you know, it looks like he may have had some real interaction with the Essenes. They had sort of separated themselves out. They thought that they were a little more, I don't know, correct or pure or something. You know, I I don't know. Maybe those are unfair, but you get the idea. Well, this same group could have confronted, you know, the ones that are confronting Jesus, they could have confronted John with the same questions. But Jesus' underlying point is that the answer to his question is the answer to their question. So what I'm saying is, if John was from God, well, then so was Jesus. So he took this simple question, and he's now turned that trap right back on them. So before, when we were wondering gee, why were they asking about his authority? Why did they ask, you know, the nature of it, plus who gave it to you, whatever. Jesus seems to be either in the know or making an assumption that they were questioning, you know, did his authority, it was it divine or human, and did God give it to him or not, okay? So, anyway, they recognize, because they're not dumb. Please don't think that these people are dumb. They're not. They recognize that, I mean, there's really only two reasonable answers, and that either one of them, both of them, is going to put them in an awkward, unwanted position. If they say heaven, how are they ever going to explain their unwillingness to support or follow or endorse John? Or we could even say accept John's endorsement of Jesus, because John very clearly identified Jesus as Messiah, right? Maybe he went back later and was a little less certain, but whatever, and then if they say that, you know, John's came from man, well, then they they know that they're going to offend and enrage this crowd because the crowd loved John. It, just to say it in modern lingo, they knew he was a prophet from God. They were convinced. It was compelling. So their original questions for Jesus were supposed to put him in this awkward position. (laughs) But here they are. They're the ones in the awkward position. They didn't like it. And they were left with only one course of action. Samuel, what do you do when you're trapped? (laughs) Plead the fifth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you play dumb. (laughs) Right? I mean, if you are a living human, if you've ever been, I don't know, a child or any... What what do you do? You play dumb. That's just what we do. So... They say that they don't know. And this is kind of cool. Jesus, he actually, for the most part, he's just content with that. He knows that, that they're just obviously refusing to answer because it puts them in an awkward position, right? And so he's content with it and he does the same to them. I'm not going to say what you want me to say just so you can trap me. I'm just not going to answer your question. Which, you know, it's quite impressive. If you've ever been in situations where you ever felt like somebody was kind of trapping you with words or whatever, to be this cool and to be able to turn it around so easily and trap your opponent, whatever, I mean, it's always impressive. It's good. And again, it points to John and Jesus coming from the same authority. It's God. But Jesus, you know, even though he appears to be content with this initial interaction and just going, hey, you won't answer me, I won't answer you. Well, he isn't going to just let him off the hook either. He's going to give him a little instruction regarding John and their response to him. So before we go on to that, what you got, Samuel?
1: Um, It's a cool section. It surprised me a little bit the way that John re-enters the picture after <laughs> yeah. kind of a long absence of him being mentioned. Yeah. Oh. Um, And I think it's pretty telling, at least from a public perspective, how much John must have still been in the conversation among their talks of the things of God, prophecy, what God's doing in his holy land, that kind of thing. Um, I just didn't expect that. Also. Is there any significance to the phrase in verse 25, the, the baptism of John? Is, he, is that just like a euphemism for like the message of John, the gospel of John? Or is it, should it be taking, taken more maybe literally in terms of he was performing baptisms under his following?
0: Yeah, I think it's it's more your first option. I think what they're getting at is what was John preaching? The gospel. Okay, and it was I mean, what's what's the the main instruction from John's message? Repent. Yeah, he's his message was a message of repentance. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. And what was John for all practical purposes telling people? If they repent,
1: what? You've stumped me on this one. I don't...
0: <laughs> and, and I mean, it's nothing special or surprising. They were then in right standing with God. I mean, he was basically saying, look, first of all, it's for all of you. He's, you know, obviously preaching to Israel. Okay, we get the context. But it's like, look, it, you may be, I don't know, tax collector, prostitute, soldier, cheat, this, that. I, I don't know what you are. It's for you. But he was also saying to... The religious leaders, uh, this same repentance, yeah, it's also for you because you're screwed up too, right? Uh, it was, a, it was a, a universal, at least in the in the context of Israel, it was a universal message, and it was that you know what y- you need to return to God, and in returning to God, they also were uh, going to be able to have access to. Life, eternal life, the kingdom, that kind of thing. So yeah, I think when it says the baptism of John, they're talking about you know his entire ministry and message.
1: Gotcha. Anything else? Not really. Not anything too big. Other than I think we could take a page out of Jesus' book on maybe the the wise approach to responding to those who are wanting to incite. Division or strife in your life, even though, like in the moment, you might be in the right for wanting to speak the clear truth about whatever the situation is, the conflict. I, I just think it's a very wise approach that Jesus did right here, where he was completely justified to be able to reveal his authority, um, but he did it in such a way that probably brought more. Introspection and conviction uh, and real thought other than the emotional response,
0: yeah, yeah, no question and 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 okay, th- what's coming he is going to he is going to push back he's going to get a little well, I was going to say direct, but he's using parables, so it's not really- direct. i don't know you know I'm, he's going after him a little bit mm-hmm. here we go yeah, let's take a look at that now we're only going to be in matthew now it 's matthew chapter twenty one verses twenty eight through 32, it's a kind of a cool little parable though. So here's what it says. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Okay. So, who's Jesus talking to and who's who in the story? Let's get into it. We have a man, and let's just right off the top, let's go ahead and say he's going to represent God, so this man has a vineyard, and Samuel what did what have we learned already through through much of the Old Testament when we're talking about a vineyard in the scriptures representing a person or a people's or whoever, who is that vineyard
1: the nation of Israel
0: yeah, God's vineyard is Israel, so we have a a man, we're saying it's God, he has a vineyard, Israel, and this man. God has two sons. And we'll talk about who they are in a second. He asked them to work in the vineyard. Okay, well, if the vineyard is Israel, what work is Israel expected to do? Well, that is Torah and the commandments actually representing God to man and man to God. It's like a nation of priests, all of that, right? So for reference, we can see that Jesus, he's kind of playing off of this well-known symbolism within Judaism. And you know what? We may as well read something. I put the little note in here, Samuel, Isaiah 5-7. Why don't you read that?
1: For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness but behold, an outcry. Yeah,
0: and you can see
1: it all in there, right?
0: God has a vineyard, it's Israel and Judah, and and he's looking for justice and righteousness. That's the work in the vineyard, but instead he gets bloodshed and outcry, right? So uh, this particular verse, this particular uh, imagery, all of that stuff, it's applicable here in this parable, and it's also going to be in the next one, so hold on to that. Now, this first son and and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, you heard it in the story. He reluctantly obeys or he eventually obeys. But the second son, he's deceitful. He he agrees to obey, but he does not do it. Now, when asked, and and now I didn't know what else to call him in my notes. These are going to now become the impressive group of men cuz <laughs> I don't want to keep saying the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and all the stuff. Okay, this, so this impressive group of men, they're asked, you know, who's who's actually doing the will? And they recognize, well, it's the first one. The first son is the one who's actually doing the will of the Father. The second one was not. But now here's the, the kicker. The first son, as Jesus continues, the first son represents tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are, and we see this in John the Baptist. That I think that's why Jesus brought him in so that he can continue with this kind of parable, whatever. These are the people who are initially disobedient and rebellious, inside and out. But eventually, they're convicted within. Like, for example, in John's message, John's baptism. They're convicted and they choose to be obedient and compliant. So they used to be rebellious inside and out, and now they're, you know, obedient and compliant inside and out, right? It's good. In the context of John the Baptist, okay, I think we're, we're supposed to understand that they're confronted with their disobedience and rebellion, right? And it says, John came in the way of righteousness, speaking righteousness, leading people to righteousness, whatever, and... They heard, they believed, they understood, they took it to heart, this message of John. They chose to return to God in repentance and began walking in obedience. It's a great story. And, I mean, it wasn't just the people of John the Baptist's day. This is what we've seen from Christianity and the rest of humanity in all of the history since. It's a great story. But you got this second son. Okay, he actually represents... This, ingressive, this impressive group of men who are trying to trap Jesus. Their lives are a contradiction. Outwardly, they portray total submission and allegiance to God. But, as we've seen so many times through the Gospels, it actually, the truth is actually that they're hypocrites, they're actors, they're religious in appearance only. But inwardly, they are actually disobedient and rebellious. And that alone is bad enough. And, and, you know, certainly before John. But after seeing and hearing John and seeing and hearing the repentance embraced by these other people, the tax collectors, the sinners, etc., etc., the first son... Okay. This was an obvious indicator of God's authority, God's endorsement, and they still refused to hear John and change. They did not believe his message. And so, at this point, he's he refused to answer their question, kind of trapped them a little bit. Now he's told this parable, which is pretty obviously against them. They're probably feeling pretty sorry they ever came and asked Jesus a question at all. However, Jesus is not done. He's going to up the ante and let them know that whatever power, authority, leadership they think they have in Israel is about to be stripped from them. But it's going to be kind of cool to
1: see how he does that.
0: But before we go there,
1: what do you got, Samuel? I really like the parable um, and the message that is being conveyed here I guess I'm trying to connect it to the argument that is happening in the larger picture of this portion of the last week with Jesus and these well-to-do leaders of, of Israel um, because there wasn't any talk in the previous sections about like what you said for the equivalent of the first son, those that were initially re- rebellious and disobedient and then repented. That they just asked them about his authority, so like, could you help me connect the dots at, at how the initial question that they asked leads to Jesus framing the parable in, in this such a way?
0: Okay, I'm not sure I'm am- going to answer directly, but I'm going to try. What we have here is these guys are coming, and what they're, what they're trying to do is question Jesus' authority. And what Jesus does is, in a sense, he's trying to expose them to show that they don't even recognize true authority when they see it. And so what he's doing is going back to John, Jesus is suggesting that John was acting under God's authority. It was true divine authority, and that they didn't see it, which is a way, the way he presented it, it's also suggesting that he is operating under God's divine authority, and they're not seeing it. And he also then wants to emphasize how, because they didn't recognize it, like, I guess, in essence, he's basically saying, this is exactly your problem. You're not seeing it. And what he wants them to see is that there are others who do see it. And so, when he brings John into the equation, he's, number one, endorsing John, and he's showing that this is the actual work that God is doing in their midst, and and that, as it turns out, it is sinners tax collectors prostitutes whatever fill in the blank they are the ones who are actually with uh how how can i say it? they have true sight they have true hearing because they picked up on it and they responded to it and because they're not it shows that they are in a sense blind and deaf and i don't know unaware or something Mm i was looking for a third i don't know why i thought i needed one (laughs) I mean, is that getting at it at all?
1: Definitely. And while you were replying, I was taking a look at the text again and uh, the end of Jesus' parable, rereading that with him in verse 32 with him saying, John came, you didn't believe him, but those that John came and preached the message to, tax collectors and prostitutes, they believed him. Um, and even though you saw it, you didn't change your mind. So I think this was one of those instances where you get lost in the thick of the weeds where you're yeah. I, My brain was maybe getting caught up in the specifics. Um, and then when we take a step back and look at it again, it, it, it all kind of fits together. So yeah, you help, you helped for sure. All right. Yeah. It's, you know, and this is, I mean, this is a really
0: good, just super practical lesson and it's applicable to all of us all the time. When you're reading your Bible, you know, to read the same thing multiple times, and I'm suggesting more in the neighborhood of 20 instead of two, <laughs> but reading over and over looking for, hey, why does it say this? Or why is this here? I wonder what that's pointing to. I mean, this podcast, my goodness, we spend a lot of time on short amount of text, And we're nowhere near covering it all. There's so much more to be gained. But, you know, part of our effort, part of our goal is to get people to slow down. Hey, why don't you really look at what you're reading? Why don't you see what else you can see in there? If we're seeing all of this stuff, there's way more waiting for you in there. Why don't you go after it, you know? So, you know, you just lived the example right here in real life, and and I guarantee you I've lived it. 10, 20, 30 times in the past week or two, right? It's <laughs> this, is, this is just real stuff. So, anything else?
1: Don't think so. I'm just wondering where he's going to go from here.
0: All right. Well, this gets pretty good. So, now we're back to all of the Gospels having, you know, a similar story. So, what are we reading from? This is Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 39. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 15. And I think I'm going to stick with Matthew this time. My reason for choosing may be difficult to nail down, even for me, but whatever. I'm choosing Matthew. Here we go. (laughs) Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Probably should have done some sort of content warning on that. I mean, that's pretty graphic, right? (laughs) somebody got killed so anyway what do we got here let's see if we can break it down like we always try to do so we have a master of a house i know you're probably shocked i'm gonna go with this is god and he plants a vineyard samuel take another shot at it who's the vineyard i feel like i'm having deja vu Uh, israel (laughs) yeah there you go now We might even go further and say the people of Israel, specifically in the land of Israel. I mean, maybe that's an important detail, distinction, something. I don't know. Uh, Or maybe not. But for sure, you're right. It's, It's Israel. God plants a vineyard, and he does a bunch of work in the vineyard and it, you know for various reasons he, he wants to make sure it's safe and protect protected that it's going to you know produce a lot of good fruit they're going to be able to work that fruit like the with the wine press all that kind of stuff but Samuel when we're talking about the master of a house being God and he's planting vineyard and he he wants fruit from it what is he talking about
1: um good deeds
0: yeah and and we could use other words like righteousness justice, mercy, right? Those are the things he wants. He doesn't want good deeds for the sake of good deeds. He wants good deeds for the sake of these attributes of God, justice, mercy, righteousness, all of that. So, I mean, he sets this vineyard up right. I mean, he's, this, this is awesome. He invests in this vineyard, but then he has to go off to another country. And we're assuming that this is for a long time. Now, this sounds very much like a journey parable, and do you remember what we've said about journey parables, Samuel? What's the, sort of the the underlying story or message they're trying to get across?
1: Uh, you have someone who has authority, kind of giving responsibility to someone else, and then that figure of authority leaves for whatever reason, and then eventually is going to return and see the status of the things that they left for those people to take care of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, what it gets down to is this idea of people acting responsibly even without direct supervision. Now, so this sounds a lot like a journey parable and okay. I, I feel like I need to say this out loud. I don't know why. Just as a, as a side note, We shouldn't try to take this parable too literally and make it mean that somehow God, you know, just up and leaves Israel or up and leaves mankind or his creation or whatever. That's not the point. It's just to show, look, when God isn't just directly in your midst, you know, commanding and demanding or, you know, whatever, what are you doing, right? So some of these details... I mean honestly, they're just good storytelling. It just sets up what follows. So, you know, don't don't get don't get too literal with it.
1: Well, and you could also add in that maybe the reason that there's this separation if we're trying to connect it to something is that God has left due to sin and death being present in our reality. Like his presence yeah. isn't with us in the same way that it used to be. Because yeah. of those barriers, uh, getting yeah, the, in the way. That's right. The big story starts with God, and
0: I'm going to say, in some some way, He is literally dwelling with man. But because of sin, it's like He's veiled from creation in some way. There there is some sort of separation. And of course, the big the big ending is when God actually again dwells with man in creation. It's kind of a cool thing. So anyway. Good point, Samuel. Good point. Before he goes, before this, this master goes, uh, he leaves some people in charge. Now, in this case, they aren't like servants or whatever. They're referred to as tenants. And this is very interesting because this paints, you know, kind of a unique image from some of the other stories we've we've read. Uh, it paints an image where some of the expected fruit is going to benefit The tenants themselves, and some will benefit the master. And again, we've talked about the fruit you know, justice, mercy, righteousness, it's good deeds, all that kind of stuff. It seems to be in everyone's best interest. I think that's kind of a neat little twist on others we've seen recently. Now, in this case, (laughs) who are the tenants? Well, there are people like the chief priests or the high priest, the Sanhedrin, okay? Those are the ones who are left in charge over Israel. And it's important that this authority, the, 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 the authority that the chief priests have, that the Sanhedrin has, this is authority that was actually given by God to them in the Torah. So they're not just taking something that, that God didn't give them. God gave it to them. Now, they might be, you know, being weird about it or abusing it or something, but, but God gave it to them. Chief priests, Sanhedrin. Okay, that's like the, this is what it looks like in Israel, but again, back in the parable, harvest time rolls around. So this master, and we're going to say it's God, he expects some fruit. What's that fruit, Samuel? Uh, righteousness. Yeah, justice, mercy, all those things. He wants some fruit from the vineyard. Who's the vineyard? Israel. Yeah. So he sends some servants to collect. And I guess we could say, you know, like his share, the master's share, because we're talking about tenants now, right? Now, here's a good one, Samuel. The servants that the master sends, okay, outside the parable, what does this represent in Israel's history? You got a guess?
1: It Kind of sounds like judges or prophets that God sent to uh, convey some type of message of repentance or woe and it not being received very well.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. The servants represent the prophets all through Israel's history. The prophets of Israel were indeed treated very much like the servants that we see in this story. This whole thing about beaten and struck on the head and treated shamefully, stoned, killed, I went from all of the gospel accounts in that one. Uh, the more he sent, the worse they were treated. And it's interesting, if you wanted to, you could zip ahead over to Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus is actually going to talk about that explicitly. We're not going to go, because we're going to be there soon enough. I mean, what's a few weeks or months between friends? <laughs> but anyway so so it's the prophets they've been mistreated throughout history they were not followed trusted listened to whatever and it seems like over time the worse it got okay so ultimately the master we're saying that's god decides that he's going to send his son now who's that samuel it's got to be jesus right yeah yeah i mean in in the whole big story i don't know who else it would be it's got to be he sends his son because okay, in the parable, he believes that they will respect him. he's trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, okay, okay, if they didn't respect all of these other guys, surely they're going to respect my son now again i gotta I gotta offer the same sort of side note that I did before. Are we supposed to take this parable in a literal way where It turns out that God is actually kind of gullible and dumb? No way. I don't think so. That's not the point at all. But it's good storytelling. We're trying to set up what this looks like. Even though the master does represent God, it doesn't have to be direct analogous attribute matches for God. You know, that kind of thing. So anyway, the master in this story believes they're going to respect his son. For the hearer of this parable... Back in first century Israel, and even for us today, but especially for them, the treatment of these servants, it it just would have been very, very offensive, very outrageous. But when they also kill the son and throw him out of the vineyard, effectively trying to take possession of the vineyard for themselves, he's the heir, let's kill him and then we'll take it. Okay, this is just too much. That master must take action. I would even use the phrase, he must have his revenge. Now, I know that revenge isn't really a good part of the Jude, Judaism story or the Christian story or whatever. But you understand the thinking, the emotion behind hearing this story. Unless you're actually picking up what Jesus is laying down. Well, what do I mean by that? What's, what's another way to say that, Samuel.
1: Um, uh, smelling what
0: he's stepping in. <laughs> That's right. If you're, if you're actually really hearing what Jesus is doing, if you're understand, if you're understanding who the players are in the parable and who's standing here listing the parable, if you're really picking up on it, if you're smelling what he's stepping in, okay, maybe you don't want to see this master get his revenge. And we're going to talk about that. But, <laughs> bad news, we're probably not going to be talking about it in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but, for so so, so you've probably got a couple of different people here. And the reason I say that is because we're going to find out in this next part that depending on who's telling the story, depending on who's no, who knows what, some of these people listening may have actually understood that Jesus was, like, the bad guys, the tenants. He was talking about this impressive group of men who were actually standing there trying to bust Jesus' chops and failing miserably at it. We're going to see that. But for the others, or or depending, again, on the gospel count you're, you're trusting, maybe they didn't even catch what he was doing at all, and they totally were on the side of this master. They wanted to see the master uh, judge or punish these tenants because what they were doing was so, so wrong. But, sadly, we're going to have to stop, and you're going to
1: have to wait to hear how that comes out. Definitely. that would, This is would be such a clean break for me to just say okie-dokie oh! and us leave, but... <laughs> Sadly I have things in my head that I need to get out. Do um, it. If people are struggling with Paul's like phrase the the master he must take action have his revenge like another way another phrase that came to mind for me that might fit as well as like he must execute retributive justice. Like, yes. The these people need to get what they deserve so to speak rather than yeah. uh redemptive justice which is meant to bring the person in the wrong back into right standing and correct living under the the standards that they are held under. Um so I just wanted to <laughs> yeah bring, trick bring question that up. Samuel which one of those
0: kinds of justice does God do? Um he does both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Now, which one does he prefer? He prefers the redemptive justice. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a part of the story of our Bible. If he, if everything just completely went God's way, I know that sounds funny to say that, but you, you get what I'm asking. If everything went his way, there would only be a redemptive sort of justice, but... Because of man, because of what man has accomplished in his history here on the earth, there have been occasions where God has chosen, or I I don't know, depends on how you think about this, he may have been uh, forced to execute retributive justice or whatever, that kind of thing. Again, I know those are, those are weird words, and people might have problems with them. I'm not, I'm not trying to make any actual theological statement. I'm just saying God's done both, and in a sense, humans have forced his hand in that regard, and, you know, redemptive justice is the preferred, and it is—I I say that because it's what you can count on from God if you are dealing honestly
1: with him. Mm. Yeah, that's a good thing.
0: Anything else, Samuel?
1: Yeah, actually. Um, so, right. <laughs> this parable, the way that you have connected the characters and the descriptors of Jesus' story, they fit like a puzzle piece so well between like the master being God, the vineyard being Israel, um, the the tenants being serve or the servants in the tents being like prophets, and then the son being Messiah. But there is in my head, there is one glaring part that does not fit so seamlessly. And maybe it's just good storytelling, like you said, but I wanted to bring it up. So in verse 38, where it says, But when the tenants saw the sun, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Well, whenever I'm trying to think about the connection between this parable and like what is happening in like God's actual narrative with Israel, mankind, Messiah. I, I don't see the people who are opposing the Son acknowledging this is the heir, like right. let's kill him and have the inheritance. They they don't recognize that he is the heir. And like they're not killing him in my head, they're not killing Jesus or going to be killing him for any sort of inheritance. They're they're killing it, killing him because of, I don't know, he's breaking their preconceived notion of who they want Messiah to be. <laughs> right. I don't know. Right. So do you, do you see the tension that I'm wrestling oh, totally.
0: with? Yeah, completely. Yeah, it's a great question. So, okay, the, and, and there's more than one answer that I think is applicable. Number one, there's this idea that, okay, remember how we talked about God and we said, hey, you know, don't don't actually take this too far and think that this means that somehow God is gullible and dumb. Right. Okay, so in a similar kind of way, we could look at this and go, look, don't take this too far and think that they are actually recognizing that Jesus is the heir in the big story God sense. Okay, so you could say that. Don't don't push it too far. Okay, true? Not true? I don't know. You pick. Another one, though, is this. Remember when we talked... What was it? The high priest, and I don't know if we did this in the podcast or maybe if this was a different discussion we were having, Samma. But we talked about this idea that the high priest—I think it was here in the podcast—he had made some sort of proclamation, like, "Hey, you know, if we if we kill this guy, we're going to save you know many many more lives and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff." So in in effect, his death would save Israel—that kind of a thing. And we talked about how it's like it was an unwitting prophecy of sorts Mm -hmm. right so that's another thing you could look at this and you go yeah and so when they recognize that he is the heir i mean obviously in the story it's in the practical sense this is the son of the guy who owns the vineyard if we kill the son there's nobody left to get the inheritance so we'll take it (laughs) Ha ha. well in a similar way we could say that you know contained within this there's like this this it's almost like an unwitting prophecy of sorts, okay? So that's a thing. Again, take it or leave it. You may like it, not like it, whatever. Here's the one, though, that I think is the real kicker. And, and it's something we're not very familiar with, generally speaking. There's this idea within Judaism that this Messiah, he was, okay, how, how do I say this? It's difficult to to without having somebody else's words in front of me to try to find a good way to say it. We know that God looks at Israel, the nation, as his chosen one. He had a very specific plan and purpose for them. They they were, again, his, his vineyard. They called him son of God. You know, all this kind of stuff. Bride. All of these different things. And we know that in so many ways, because Israel is no different than the rest of us, I mean, they just kind of screwed a lot of things up. And that's not saying anything other than, apparently they're human too. But this idea of Messiah coming in his person, like just his lone self, this Messiah, was to actually represent all of Israel just within his single self. And so when you see, and this actually kind of fits pretty good into the story, when you see Jesus being perfectly righteous and obedient to God, well, as Messiah, he represents the entire nation being righteous and obedient to God. And that's not to say that that means that all of them would be saved. In fact, we know that his generation was under judgment. You know, that that, that was a bad thing. But in the big story, it represents the whole nation. And so, in another way, we look at this and we go, this is the heir. Well, who was supposed to be the heir to all of this stuff? The nation of Israel. But Jesus comes in all by himself, fills that role. And so he is the heir. And at the same time, he represents the nation and God uses the nation as a conduit for all of the salvation story. So there's that aspect. So I don't know that any of those really answer your question i just thought that all of those were cool and so i can at least say them out loud
1: (laughs) no i've loved your answer i think that those are descriptors that help enrich the parable and make the wrestling uh even more engaging so thank you
0: yeah see you the listener think that i'm just trying to add in everything that i can you don't know how much i leave out (laughs) There's a lot of stuff, but we got to make some progress. So anyway, <laughs> there you go. All right. Anything else, Samuel? That's it.
1: All right. We are calling this one done. Okie dokie. Move! Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.